As we engage in the process of meditation, in the journey of our retreat, there are many experiences we can encounter, many things we can find ourselves working with. And I'd like to speak this morning about some of the familiar friends, we might say, that we are likely to encounter that we may not always uh, find so easy to receive, but that are nonetheless really important to understand. And uh, sometimes described as the hindrances, uh, which actually isn't that useful a word. I find the word challenges much more helpful to think in terms or to relate in terms of the challenges to meditation practice. Because ultimately there are no experiences which hinder us from engaging in any absolute sense. The Buddha once said of this capacity we have as human beings, he said, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is clouded by attachments that visit it. This the unlearned, untrained human being does not understand. And so for them there is no development and cultivation of this heart-mind. And he went on to say, friends, this heart-mind, citta, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is free from the attachments which visit it. This the learned, the wise, the well-trained human being understands. And for them there is the cultivation and the development of this heart-mind. And so I think there's something really useful in this articulation of the Buddha to reflect on here to see that the things that we encounter that might seem to cloud our experience, cloud this heart-mind, impact us in ways we find challenging, they're visitors. One of my uh, teachers in India, Manindra, he, he, I remember him once saying to me, you know, anger comes from outside the mind. And at the time it really struck me, I thought, where does it come from? But just the sense, oh, these experiences that arise that are difficult, and anger, aversion is one of them, they come from outside the mind. They're not inherent to or intrinsic to the nature of what we call this heart-mind, this citta, this sensitive, responsive human consciousness. And so what's important is to be aware of and to respond and understand how to respond skillfully when we encounter these visitors, these challenges, that again are classically described as the hindrances. And just to say, with that hindrance, specifically these forces, these factors, and I'll name them, though you're probably quite familiar with them, and more than just their names, uh, of craving, desire, or grasping, of aversion, which includes fear, anger, hatred, resistance, rejection, of restlessness and agitation, 
of drowsiness, heaviness, sleepiness, or sloth and torpor, sometimes called, and of doubt, confusion, and a sort of a wavering uncertainty. These, these five qualities, these five forces, we need to see them. We need to understand them. And they're powerful if we don't see them, if we don't recognize them for what they are. They tend to pull us away from the meditation practice. And specifically, when these qualities or factors are present, concentration, samatha, samadhi, that factor is significantly affected or possibly undermined. So the language of hindrance makes sense only in relationship to the fact that in the presence of one of these five um, visitors, we could say, the mind is unlikely to be settled, to be calm. But that doesn't mean there can't be some understanding, some wisdom in relationship to them. And that, in that regard, I describe them as a challenge and not a hindrance to this practice. If we can see them as visitors, we don't need to be afraid of them. Nor do we need to give them the authority to decide what happens in this house. They're guests. And uh, all too often we identify with them. We take them to be who we are or what we are in some way, imagining them to be inherent to our very nature. And in that process, effectively give them the keys, hand over the, the space and say, OK, you're in charge here. Of course, we don't do that intentionally. And if we fight with them, of course, that doesn't really help either. If we try and stop them coming in, saying, no, no, no. What's most useful is to be able to see what's arising, whatever it might be, with a wonderful, wholesome, delightful qualities, with a difficult, challenging, painful or unsettling qualities we're encountering arising in the mind. When we see them as something that visits, that is not inherent to the inner space of heart and mind, then we can handle them. If we take them to be who we are, we suffer and we become disconnected from the present moment, from ourselves, from the capacity we have to reorient or to orient towards the wakeful quality of heart and mind, the sensitivity, the presence, the openness, the spaciousness, the groundedness. And this is painful. This is not what we wish for. So to not reject the difficult experiences that arise, nor to identify with them. Easier said than done, of course. But possible for us. And just before I speak a little bit more about them individually, to 
to notice also where we make conclusions about our practice based on the arising of hindrances, on the arising of challenges or of difficulties. It's very easy to think that if my practice was going well, I would be experiencing a steady flow of calm, quiet, open mind states and um, a sort of a, a linear and clearly upward accelerating trajectory of, um, of, of wholesome qualities becoming more ripe and full and obvious within our hearts and our minds. And that would be nice, of course. And, uh, you know, sometimes it sounds a bit like that's what might happen when you read the description for a retreat. Um, because if one was to say, well, gosh, you could have lots of really difficult, painful, scary experiences and maybe nobody would come along. Um, but the way we take hold of difficult or challenging experience and somehow say to ourselves, oh, that means it's not working, or somehow that it undermines our sense of confidence and positive aspiration, I think is really unfortunate, and particularly because it's not true. I often find it useful to reflect upon the fact that the Buddha, in his own journey, is really quite arduous and challenging journey. He encountered many difficult experiences many times. And in the very evening before his awakening, which I imagine most of you are familiar with the story or various versions of it, in the journey of his awakening, on the very night before his awakening, he encountered all of these forces in quite strong, one could even say extreme versions. He was clearly challenged. And that was the very night of his awakening. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, look at all these difficult things arising. Obviously, I'm getting nowhere here. Maybe I'll give up. It's no. Okay. Part of what happens with these challenges is that they arise precisely because we are challenging the structures that hold us prisoner, that bind or limit us. That's part of why they arise. So interestingly, we can have a, a relatively hindrance-free experience by just finding a way, and sometimes we do this when we're good at meditation, we've done a few retreats, to just stay calm, comfortable, relaxed, but not really challenge anything. Not really put any conscious, wholesome, spiritual pressure on the places of our own limitation, our own blindness, or our own entanglement. So, so yes, in terms of the Buddha's story and in terms of our own, when we encounter the hindrances, the challenges, the difficult experiences that come, to actually be able to handle them is one thing, and I'll speak a bit more about that, but equally to take heart, in a very strange way, to take heart, it's not so strange really, that, oh, this is actually a sign that I'm stretching here. And stretching is part of what happens as we grow. If we don't stretch, we don't grow. We don't develop. So in terms of understanding that these are not ultimately who we are, but yes, the journey requires us to encounter them, it seems. If someone figures out a different version of the journey that doesn't require that, I'm sure it will be very popular. But I don't think it's been done. So I'd like to speak a bit more about the specifics of these and the dynamics of these uh, these forces. Again, you're probably quite familiar with them. But I think it's useful just to reflect as we enter into and 
continue in a journey of seeking to wake up, of seeking to really know for ourselves the, the potential of the fully cultivated and developed heart-mind that is radiant, luminous, brightly shining, as the Buddha spoke of it. And so the first and rather well-known, um, I guess, in terms of Buddha's teaching, craving. There's a lot of talk about craving, grasping, attachment, holding on. And we can see that in this process, we can easily become entangled. With any version of it, what we call, whether we call it grasping, whether we call it wanting, whether we call it desire, when it arises, what's happening and what's really useful to see is that somehow, if we haven't seen it clearly for what it is, somehow something, now whether it be an experience, meditative um, experience or a worldly one, whether it be a person, whether it be the possible menu for lunch or whatever it might be that we notice some attachment going towards. And here in the retreat, often it can be to do with meditative experiences or it might be to do with things far removed, people, material things that we suddenly think, oh, I'd really like to have one of those or be close to one of these or with one of them. What comes with it, not fully or consciously always articulate, is the sense that if I can get this or keep it, that will bring fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, peace, a place where I can land in my life and just, ah, the end of all of this trying to get somewhere else or get something else. Even if it's only momentary, the, the mark of craving, of grasping, of desire, of that, is that belief, that idea that something will do it for me and that there'll be some kind of completion in that. And that without that, completion is not possible. Fulfillment is not possible. Ease is not possible. And we so long to be happy, to feel fulfilled, satisfied, and to come to the end of the, it seems like, incessant searching, seeking, pursuing. That the sense that something, this thing, this person, this experience, this object, that will do it for me. If I can get it, or having got it, and found it's kind of good, if I can keep it, that will do it for me. So you might like to just check and see if that's operating for you in relation to the objects of grasping, of wanting, of craving. And it's kind of sad how we see also what happens is in that wish to get hold of and to keep something, we can't quite enjoy what's here. So many times I've had a conversation with someone about how some lovely meditation experience arose or some illuminating understanding would arise. And rather than being able to actually just appreciate the touch of that experience or, or really feel the resonance of a certain truth in the understanding, what arises with it is, how do I keep this? And in that moment, of course, it's lost or tragically compromised. And it's like, oh, okay. The idea that I need to keep it, what is that coming from? It's coming from some belief that if I can keep it, 
It's going to do something for me beyond what it's already offering me right now. So to see also, as well as that grasping towards what's not here, but actually attempt to hold and cling around that which is here. Equally unsatisfactory, unsuccessful, and painful. If we want to prolong an experience, we can't enjoy it. I remember being on retreat, actually I think it was at the old guy house, one day when lasagna was being was served for lunch, and I love lasagna, it's like this thing I love, and I actually talk about it quite a bit, um, on occasion it seems. And, you know, I, the moment I saw what it was, and I was, you know, ten people back in the queue, it was like, oh, I can't wait. And then, of course, getting closer, can I have a really big piece? And then it's all been cut into medium-sized pieces, and I think, I can only have one of those, probably there won't be enough. But maybe there'll be some left over. So I get my portion, I go back to my place. It's this really tasty, yummy, fragrant, mm. And I start to bolt the lasagna so I can hopefully get another portion before anyone else gets there. And you know, I got through that whole, actually it was quite a large piece. It was only my greedy eyes that were looking at it thinking that's only a medium-sized piece. It was actually quite a large piece of lasagna that was served for each large piece. And you know, I was really anxious and worried the whole way through as I ate it that there wouldn't be any more left when I got there. And wondering, you know, how cool is it to rush as soon as I've finished to get another piece or should I walk mindfully and look like I really kind of relaxed about having one or not, you know, which wasn't the truth. And all that's going through my mind and I'm not actually tasting the lasagna, I'm not actually enjoying the lasagna and at the end of it I'm stuffed, my stomach is full, I don't want any more and I haven't enjoyed what I've eaten. It's so sad, it really is so sad. And kind of humorous as well, one can see. Look, we do that, don't we, with things. And in that, if I, if I look at it, it's like, oh, if I just get enough lasagna, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be fulfilled, then I won't need to think about food too much for a while. And so we might notice how this goes on. With craving, what we're asked to do is let go. And it doesn't mean let go of the thing. It doesn't mean you can't have some lasagna or even a large portion. But let go of the idea, or you shouldn't be having any particular kind of experience or even seeking you know, worldly things that might be necessary in your life. Though maybe not while you're here. That's not going to be so useful. Um, but watching for, and so far as we can, letting go. Abandon, in fact. Abandoning the belief that whatever it is is going to do it for you in any lasting way. Because that deception creates so much suffering. And it orients us outwards towards the external experience. Even if it's an inner experience, it still becomes an external once we're trying to get hold of it or keep it. Become something outside of ourselves. Because that which is intrinsic, inherent to us, we don't need to hold on to that. We don't even need to get it because it's here. But it's really hard to know and to find what that is while we're looking elsewhere. So letting go. This is the practice, and we speak about it a lot, particularly in relationship to that which we grasp towards desire and wish for. 
And the, in a way, opposite quality, the quality that goes in the other direction, though it's actually a very similar quality, just expressed in the reverse form, is aversion. Three experiences, resistance, as anger, as hatred, as irritation, as fear, as judgment. And we see that the effect of it is to kind of pull away, to shrink, to want to either move away from ourselves or to push away, to reject, to sometimes annihilate the experience that we find difficult, that we find challenging. And so to, to understand that this experience arises around that which we find painful, difficult or scary, just as craving arises around that which we find pleasant, enjoyable or flattering in some way that we incline towards, so too aversion arises around that which is painful, difficult, scary or in some way threatening to a self-image that we'd like to maintain or think we need to maintain. And it's important to be able to distinguish between aversion and what might be an appropriate response to where there's actually physical or some other form of danger. So that there are times when it's actually really important to just work with our reaction to things. And not just act on the aversion. To not just because there's a little discomfort to move my posture every time. And absolutely not because there's a little discomfort to scratch my nose because really interesting you know scratching one's nose an itchy nose is not dangerous but sometimes it's really really itchy and just to see what it's like to practice with something where we know it's not harmful and just but it's just not pleasant and the urge to scratch it might be really strong not saying you can't or you shouldn't but it's a great place to practice so that's one kind of thing. But where there's physical pain in the posture that might be associated with some pressure on a place of injury or vulnerability or just the sort of the, the ageing body, it's okay to make a choice, an appropriate choice, to say, okay, I need to change, I need to make an adjustment. Sometimes in sitting and we're in here and committed 45 minutes, sometimes the body, particularly in the early days of the retreat, might be saying, actually, that's enough for now. And it's not just aversion, there's some wisdom and compassion in saying, okay, change the posture here. Maybe standing up at that point, doing standing meditation, or just folding the legs in a different shape for a little while. So that's different than aversion. But within that, seeing that we need to pay attention to the experience that's difficult or uncomfortable, scary or painful. That's the key. If we pay attention to the experience... We're going against the tendency of the aversion, which says, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to see it, I don't want it to be there. That's basically what it's saying. To pay attention to it allows us to begin to see what's really needed here. Because physical pain, it's really good at getting us to pay attention. That's its job. It says, pay attention here. And mostly we say, no, 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 I don't like feeling that experience. I don't want to pay attention here. But if we do, that's how we can find what's skillful when it's appropriate to just stay with, and in a way, develop the muscle of heart that allows us to make space for that which isn't easy for us. And at the same time, when necessary, exercise the, the wisdom and the compassion to make a change, to make an adjustment. So, we can see how the power 
that arises within aversion is often the way in which we project the impact of the experience into the future as what it will be like if this continues. How will it be if this physical pain continues? And you know, again, the many times related story of, of the, the, the way the mind goes, oh, it's painful, there's some uncomfortable sensations, and it's like, oh my gosh, maybe there's something really serious happening here. And in moments we can be imagining, you know, the ambulance pulling up at Guy House and we're being carted off to the hospital, you know, and amputated above the knee. You know, it's like the mind goes that quickly. And you say, oh, that's the fear moving towards the future. Okay. If I pay attention, I might say at a certain point, yeah, I do need to change the posture. But it's by paying attention we protect ourselves. When we're in the story about what might happen if, we're not really in touch with the experience. We're caught in the grip of the fear. And so again, really important, really useful to be able to name the fear, to see the nature of that experience, which we call aversion, of trying to withdraw from or push away that which we find uncomfortable. And to see how much of that is actually in our reaction to what's difficult. You know, as Mark Twain once said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. Being lost in the fear of is one of the most painful things we experience. And being able to see, oh, this is fear. This is aversion. And just as with craving we're asked to let go, with aversion what we're asked to do is let it be. And I think this is actually an important languaging here. Because when we talk about letting go of aversion, what we often think is, well, that means the aversion should go away, which it doesn't always go away when we let go. It might just be there a while. Or we think the thing that we've got aversion to should go away when we let go. That's also not true. If we say let it be, maybe you can notice what that feels like. Okay, can I let it be? Can I let this difficult experience be? Can I let my heart that's reacting to it and the mental activity, can I let that be too? Without feeding it, without identifying with it. And again, watching for the way in which underlying that whole mechanism is the sense that if this experience arises when we're anticipating it in fear or anxiety, or if it continues when it's present and we're in aversion to the actual experience that's here, how somehow if it arises or if it continues or if it comes back, that will somehow be an insurmountable obstacle. That somehow will make it impossible for me to find peace, to find well-being, to find happiness, to be free. And it's not true. It may make it challenging, yes. But it does not stand in the way of that. If we believe that it does, then of course we must get rid of it. And we find ourselves entangled with the experience in our minds and sometimes in our lives. We do that. So to learn to let it be. To notice how with uh, both craving and aversion, one of the ways they express themselves is a contraction in the body. A tightening. And the mind tightens as well. When we're identified with, when we lock into these patterns, the mind starts to turn in an ever-narrowing circle, focusing on, fixating on, 
entangled with that experience and the body likewise. Often a really useful way to engage with that once we've recognized what's happening is to become aware of how and where the body is contracting and just gently invite that to begin to soften. Breathe with the places of tightness, of holding. Again, it's not like we're forcing the body to change, but inviting that shift, settling into the felt experience in the body. And it's like, okay, can I give the space? Can I give a caring and sensitive attention to this manifestation, this expression of a particular reactivity that's visiting my heart, my mind, my body right now? And that sense of sense of softening, of widening, of opening, of just, okay, can I let this be? Can I let this be? And we might notice sometimes that uh, craving arises or the urge to do something arises and we find ourselves enacting it. Um, we might find ourselves somehow unable to resist our phone, picking it up and calling someone from within our room. It seems we might. Um, and just being aware of what's happening there. Also really useful to be aware that people in the room next door will be listening to you having this conversation. And yet there's some sense that I need to do it, obviously. Now, if you really need to make a phone call, please use the phone box outside the... Um, you don't have to use the phone in it. You can use your own phone in it if you really need to use to make a phone call. But, uh, or, or go sort of well away from anywhere else because it's really not fair for others if they have to listen to your phone call. And just to see how that lands. Because probably most of you aren't making phone calls in your room. But in a way, it's just another expression of this, isn't it? We somehow get a sense, I have to do something. And we do it. And we don't necessarily notice what the impact is. Because the impact in ourselves, in our practice, in a situation like this, is also felt around us. So the way in which we handle those forces of craving and aversion is part of what actually, as a whole field, as a, as a community, we share in the support and, at times, the impact of those forces. And to just be really aware of that. Without judgment, without blaming ourselves, because we all, at times, get caught in actions, inner actions or outer actions that we might, on reflection, realize, maybe that wasn't the wisest or the most skillful or the most useful. Sure, this happens. And with our practice, what's amazing, I think, and one of the most beautiful things is we can always begin again, start again. Yeah. We lose it, we start again. We get caught, we begin again. The, the next of the, the challenges, the hindrances, is restlessness. This way in which we can sometimes feel agitated, stirred, kind of, it can be kind of like having ants in our pants. Our body just won't sit still, the mind is going this way, going that way. It can be quite uncomfortable. And it's not easy to be with, to stay with this experience. It has the very strong sense of there must be something else, somewhere else, just, but whatever we turn towards isn't it. 
And it's to do with there being kind of an excess of energy, an amplification of energy, an insufficiency of calm, of, um, of tranquility. And so with that energy, often it's going to be fueled. This is my, my experience. It tends to be arising in kind of four basic ways. It goes towards the past, when we start thinking about the past with remorse, with guilt, with regret, with anger. There's a, there's a whole generation of that that goes on, of, of agitation. It goes towards the future with the, the mind that's afraid of what might arise or anxious about what might arise. And it goes to the future also with excitement or with hope about what might happen. So the thinking patterns are sometimes very much flavoured by anxiety or excitement, which are both sort of, sort of amplified or the energy becomes activated and even amplified connected with either a, a craving or an aversion. That's the way it mostly happens. And either I'm too excited to sit here because I want to do that exciting or sort out that exciting thing. I've just remembered a passage in the book and when I read it, it's going to help me or, you know, something like that. Or it's like there's something we haven't quite seen that's uncomfortable, that's difficult, and we're just shifting around, and no matter where we move, no matter where we put our body, it's not at ease there. So that, that amplification of energy sometimes arises from trying too hard. We're sort of pushing in some way or another, and seeing that it's desire or aversion generally that stimulates and underlies the restless activity. Sometimes, of course, it can be both. So what restlessness asks us to do is relax. Just feel the discomfort. It's like, ah, it's the last thing we want to do. But, you know, as uh, um, Catherine sometimes says, you know, see if you could be the first yogi to die of restlessness. Uh, it's never been reported, but something in us feels like we might if we don't move. And what is that idea, that belief? Because it's not true. We're not going to die of restlessness. And sometimes restlessness is, again, it's a very specific um, marker of something in our system, in our self-personality psychological structure, actually being put under pressure in some way or form. It's one of the responses we have to that happening. So the great challenge is to do nothing in the face of the urge to do something, anything, whatever it might be. To do nothing. To give more attention to the outbreath. To notice that the outbreath is where we feel the relaxing, the softening, the dropping, the opening in the physical and also in the energetic body. And so that really can support the mind to soften, to relax, to open. And the fourth the hindrances, sleepiness, sloth, dullness, drowsiness, torpor. Don't you like that word? Torpor. It's kind of got the feeling in it, it seems. And it's about there not being enough energy. Actually, when there's an, a lack of energy in the system, when sometimes the qualities of calm and tranquility have become overdeveloped, 
and there isn't enough engagement, there isn't enough inquiry or enough curiosity or enough effort being applied. And it's not always the case that that's what's needed. But what we do need to see is that sleepiness, drowsiness, heaviness, first of all, we need to check, is there a an, sort of an objective practical reason why so? Um, if we haven't slept much for the last few nights or have been really busy for the last few days or weeks of our life before we got here, yes, probably there's going to be some sleepiness and it's not necessarily an avoidance pattern or a hindrance in the, or challenge in the way I'm speaking about them. It might actually be a signal from the body saying, you need a bit more rest. So again, there's a certain art in being able to just explore and see what's true about that. But initially what's helpful in working with this particular experience is to understand that just as Restlessness, which is too much energy, requires us to just relax and do, or do nothing. Sleepiness almost always requires us to do something. It requires an active response because the nature of the, 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 the quality is that there isn't enough activation in it. We're not activated so much in it. And so active responses, and we talk about, you know, sit up straight, open your eyes. Pay more attention to the in-breath. Don't pay attention to the out-breath when you're drowsy. It really isn't useful. That's, it's like that's the, the wave that the mind follows, the wave, the energetic wave of the out-breath is where it goes down and out. Well, maybe it does anyway. That's how I've seen it. Um, but you might want to check and see if that's what happens. It's a good thing to find anything you can get interested in when you're drowsy. Say, so, oh, do I really start to nod on the out-breath? Is that how it works? Let's see. So with the curiosity, it's fine to be watching the out-breath. But more useful often is to feel the in-breath, that vital engage. It's the whole, again, the, um, the physical and the energetic body is engaged to draw a breath in. First thing we do when we're born, get an in-breath. The out-breath is where all that just ceases, drops away. And that's the last thing we do when we die. It's always an out-breath. No one died on an in-breath. And so just feeling what that's like. One of the uh, things I find most useful, and I regard myself as a reasonably experienced worker with drowsiness, dullness, sloth and torpor. Um, it's one of my favourite themes, it seems, in my practice at times. One of the things I've found the most helpful and useful is to just do this. Anyone who would like to right now, if you've never done it before, even if you have, you can just try what it's like to do this. Holding one's arms up in the air. It requires a certain effort, sort of putting the attention into the palms of the, and the fingers and a little bit into the shoulders, which is where the work's happening. What I notice is it opens the chest, it engages the body. It's a little bit of work after a few moments, and if you notice that, making an effort with the body helps brighten the mind. The mind can't really make the mind get brighter by itself, but the mind can say to the body, do something. The body does something, and then the body says to the mind, ah, oh, here's some energy, because it's where it is. It opening and lifting the arms like this allows the blood to flow more easily through the shoulders and the neck and the energy likewise 
to keep the consciousness bright. And yeah, you don't have to keep your arms up here, but it's interesting if one goes a little bit beyond the comfort zone. In meditation, almost anything can happen. There are no guarantees. But I will guarantee to you, you will not fall asleep while you're holding your arms in the air. <laughs> I've never had, I've said this to hundreds of students, I've never had one come back and say they managed it. So you could check it out and see. And what I noticed then when I put my arms down, and you might like to do this, just to feel what it's like through the chest, upper back, and what that's like. And what I notice is that it actually feels more open, and the energy brightens. The mind is clearer, more present. But there are other options too. The Buddha listed amongst responses to drowsiness and sleepiness, pulling one's earlobes. You can try that too if you like. Personally, I've never found it particularly helpful, but I have sometimes wondered if the Buddha worked a lot with this particular technique. And maybe he was challenged by drowsiness quite a lot because, you know, we can see the images of the Buddha. Maybe he's been uh, working on these. I don't know. So the there's the active responses. And again, you can see how this maps against restlessness as a kind of a, the opposite of experience, which is not enough energy, and that the response is again the reverse or the inverse. Do something when you're drowsy. Don't just, oh, drowsy, be mindful of drowsiness. Oh, that's drowsiness, okay. At least if it works for you, that's great, but I never found that useful. I just would start to just drop back into it. Or sitting up straight, lifting the arms, standing up. Opening the eyes can be really helpful. And with that, just as with many of these things, you know, one does need to check, do I need some rest? And if that's not the case and it's persistent over time, certainly beyond the first couple of days or more, one might then usefully ask a question without assuming that there's an answer to it, but ask the question, when drowsiness arises, is there something in or near my experience that I don't want to experience or to see. There may not be. I'm not saying there is. But sometimes drowsiness is one of the last resorts of the consciousness. Again, when we're, something is pressing on us or when we're cha being challenged internally in some way and there's no other way to escape, the mind just starts to go down and out into unconsciousness. And it can be an avoidance mechanism. As I said, don't assume that it is. But become interested, become curious. And that curiosity in itself will also be helpful because that's one of the qualities that's associated with more, more energy, investigation. So with sleepiness, engage, make a response. And we might sometimes be inspired by, you know, stories of of great teachers who would uh, work with these things. Uh, I remember hearing stories of you know Tibetan lamas who would do their meditation on the edge of a precipice, knowing that if they got drowsy and nodded and fell forward, they would be gone. And it's like, well, that'll keep you awake. Yeah, I should think so. We don't have to go quite that far here. But like, wow, what is it to really want to be awake? Because sometimes it takes that much commitment. 
And sometimes, as I said, we need to listen to what the genuine and real needs of our bodies are. And sometimes what we need is rest. But either way, we need to really be attentive and taking care to see. And the last of the challenges, the hindrances that we classically talk about is doubt. That kind of undermining uncertainty that that leads us to kind of lose heart, that says, oh, I can't do this, or it doesn't work, or it's no good, or I'm no good, or, uh, you know, that kind of, it's sort of like a deflating, and it's like where we lose the sense of possibility. It's like the sense of bright possibility. In a certain way, it's, it's, count, it's the counter quality, or the, it's what arises in the absence of some sense of faith, of trust, of, okay, yes, I can and I will engage in this way and it will be of benefit, it will be useful, it will be fruitful. And um, what's interesting with doubt is that it often arises consequent upon one of the others arising, like desire, grasping, aversion, resistance, sleepiness or restlessness. One of those arises and then because of that we think, oh, it's not working. So that's going back to what I said earlier, that, oh, the arising of these qualities does not mean it's not working. Sometimes it means exactly that it is working. That's why. Of course, then we have to be working too, because it's not easy. But it is possible. It is possible. So one thing that's helpful here is to really let go of any unrealistic expectations we might have that we place upon ourselves about what it should look like, how far we should have got. And often the way we um, correlate an absence of difficulty with progress, which isn't always the case at all, actually. Sometimes difficulty and the fact that we're there with it is where the progress, the development, the maturing of our hearts and our minds takes place. And there's, there's this great story I love to, to retell of a, of a student of, uh, I think, 20 years meditation who had the opportunity for an audience and a, to ask a question of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And um, he, he came and he started talking about all the challenges and difficulties in his practice and his life and, you know, and particularly these you know, meditative struggles he had. And he said, I've been practicing for 20 years and it's still like this. You know? And His Holiness looked at him very compassionately. He said, yes, it's difficult, isn't it? And he said, you know, it's like that in the early years of practice. I find that so liberating. It's like, oh, okay, so if the first 20 years are the early years, great. It's like we don't have to have some idea of what it's supposed to be like at this point. And with that, with, 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 with that arising of this kind of, again, this undermining doubt, which is, it's different than a kind of a questioning curiosity that has a sort of a, a brightness and an interest in it. The, the characteristic of this quality of doubt, uncertainty, is that it's kind of deflated. It's like the wind is out, taken out of our sails or the, we, there's a loss of motivation and the sense of kind of wanting to give up. It's kind of got some association with sort of hopelessness or despair, just like, ah, oh, it's no good. And in fact, often it's not really doubt. It's like, oh, I don't think I can do it. It's actually... I can't do it, or I don't think it works. Actually, no, it's, it doesn't work. That's what we really are saying to ourselves in some way. And we need to see that and realise, oh, that's not true. 
to actually lose our sense of confidence, lose the energy of our practice. This is the effect of it. And, and so just bringing forth what supports faith. And again, to see that the Buddha experienced all of these on the night of his awakening, including that, that doubt you know, expressed classically in the challenge offered by Mara. You know, what right have you got to be sitting here under the Bodhi tree seeking to awaken? You know, skinny, shaven-headed, rag-wearing human being. Who do you think you are? And his response of touching the earth as the, the Buddha here with his right hand touching the earth, just actually, yes. And again, described, you know, inviting the earth to bear witness to all of the practice he'd done in his life and his lives. And so what's important for us is actually to bring to mind the wholesome, the uplifted, that expression of our life when we feel doubt or uncertainty, where we can remember the the wholesome qualities, the wholesome actions, even just simple good things we've done in our lives. Moments of kindness, generosity, restraint, or letting go. Such things are really important to bring to mind, to reflect on, particularly if we're feeling that undermining doubt arising. And to see that when we turn our attention to these, there's a, there's a quality of uplift, of buoyancy that's really important, that's really helpful. And that for us as Westerners is often something we really need to give attention to. We're so well trained at noticing all the things that don't work and are wrong with us and with everything else. And it's so incomplete and unbalanced a perception when we do that. So to see these forces... Actually, one more thing with regard to doubt is that in a way it's the expression of ignorance. Just as uh, aversion and greed, and the, the, two the two first hindrances I described or challenges, are expressions of the, you know, the primary kind of undermining forces that the Buddha spoke of, of greed, of hatred, of delusion. So too, greed, obviously craving, aversion, clearly hatred. And... Doubt is actually an expression of delusion. And the thing about doubt is always it centers around a sense of self. It's always about something to do with me. And the sense of self at the core of that doubting is actually the fundamental delusion which we need to see, to penetrate, to understand, in order to be free. And so, as the Buddha said that night before he sat down under the Bodhi tree, he made the resolve, he made the commitment, you know. I will not move from this spot until I have realized that which can be realized by human endeavor. I will not move from this spot. Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from this spot until I have realized what can be realized by human endeavor. And so that... That commitment isn't to suggest one has to stay on one's cushion, you know, from now until it's all over. But the spot that I think the Buddha's speaking to, and certainly that I'm wishing to point to, is that place where we are orienting towards the capacity and the possibility we have for being present, for being awake, for seeing that the forces that arise in the mind, craving, aversion, 
restlessness, agitation, doubt, sleepiness. These forces are visitors. They are not expressions of or definitive of what is fundamentally most true. But they do need to be understood and handled skillfully. And this is a significant element of our practice. To see that if, though the mind moves, the heart can learn to be steady. And in that way the heart-mind together come to rest. As the Buddha said, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is free from the attachments that visit it. The wise, well-trained human beings who understand this, for them there is the development, the cultivation of this heart-mind. And so the very seeing of these forces arising, the handling of them skillfully, this in itself can be the basis for the revelation, for the seeing clearly of the, the natural luminosity of the awakened mind, to be revealed, to be known in this moment and any moment. So please continue with your practice. And I wish you very well in your journeys here. And in just uh, a moment or two, there are some interviews for some of you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.